Welcome to the Godspeed Institute, an enlightening and positive forum exploring all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems as an on-air classroom in an effort to help people better understand each other, promote tolerance, and foster peace. I'm your host, Care Hallandbeck. What is interspirituality? It is a term you may be hearing more often these days, while your spell check may be telling you it does not exist. But there is a growing awareness of interspiritual wisdom and expression, and joining us to talk about it today is Mirabai Starr. Mirabai Starr is an adjunct professor of philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico, Taos. A writer, speaker, and translator, she is well known to readers for her acclaimed translations of the mystic works Dark Night of the Soul by John of the Cross and The Interior Castle and the Book of My Life by Teresa of Avila. Her latest book is God of Love, a passionate and personal exploration of the interconnected wisdom of the three Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Mirabai, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for being with us today. It's such an honor to be with you, Care. Thanks for having me. It's so good to speak with you again. I think before we begin, you actually have some updates for us. Um, Mm -hmm. You might have a more recent book you want to share about? I do. I actually have a couple of new books, but the, the one that I thought was particularly relevant today is I have a new translation out. It's the first translation I've done that isn't from Spanish, but in fact is from Middle English. And so I just translated the showings of Julian of Norwich, the medieval English mystic, who spoke of Christ as the mother. So it's a fresh new translation of the showings of Julian, and it um, seems to be really striking a chord. It's, uh, you know, people are talking about it, and I'm thrilled that it's reaching a much wider audience than, than simply a Catholic or, or strictly scholarly crowd. I also have a couple of new uh, books in my Sounds True Contemplations and Living Wisdom series, one on St. Francis of Assisi called Brother of Creation, and one on St. Teresa of Avila called Passionate Mystic. So all of these books came out this season, and at the same time, my last book, God of Love, A Guide to the Heart of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, just won the New Mexico-Arizona Book Award. So that seems to be cutting across religious and spiritual boundaries and speaking to people of of all faiths and no particular faith. Well, thank you so much for that, and congratulations. I just got chills when you said that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> congratulations. Thank you, well, you know, you, you do wonderful work, and uh, you and I do our work sort of in the same area uh, in terms sure of do. the saints and the mystics uh, and such, but you have a particular gift for translation, and um, that speaks to today's uh, readers and listeners, and that's sort of what we're getting to today when we when we discuss the mystic traditions and we discuss interspirituality. I think that's where we're heading into. So I'd just like to ask you first, personally, what is interspirituality? Mm. Well, <laughs> you inter-spirituality. made a yummy sound. <laughs> <laughs> 
Interspirituality is a term that was coined by Brother Wayne Teasdale, who was a really marvelous late 20th century theologian and mystic himself, in his book, The Mystic Heart. And he was really calling for a spirituality that transcends religious dogma and, and that we find really at the heart of all the, the mystical traditions of every, every religion. Um, the, the primary difference, I would say, between interspirituality and the interfaith movement is that interfaith dialogue is very much about cultivating an intellectual orientation to each to the particulars of different faith traditions. So people will sit around the table, proverbial or, or actual, ordained representatives of particular religious traditions, and share what it is that is most important and beloved about their faith tradition, and then listen with an open mind to what it is that other people cherish about their own religious tradition or lineage. And the whole idea, of course, in, the, in interfaith dialogue has been to, to really foster peace and, and cultivate tolerance and understanding. And that's been a very worthy and useful um, endeavor, interfaith dialogue. And it really has created, it has been a peacemaking activity for for at least a century. Interspirituality differs from interfaith dialogue in the sense that it's really about moving from the head to the heart, dropping down into a much more embodied experiential place so that when you're engaged in interspiritual practice, you're really opening your heart to transformation. You're experiencing the practices, the prayers, the rituals, the experiential elements of different faith traditions that actually have that effect of opening and changing hearts and spirits. So it's it's much riskier in many ways, interspirituality, because you're not just staying in the safety zone of, yes, I can... I can understand where a Muslim is coming from. I understand the five prayers a day and why that's so important, and, and I can appreciate that. It's moving into what happens inside my being when I kneel beside a Muslim in the mosque and do salat and bow my, my forehead and, and all my body parts <laughs> to the floor, to the ground in submission and chant the name of Allah what happens to me as a Jew when I do that. So that's, that's really what interspirituality is about experience. Interspiritual is about spiritual experience across faith traditions. It's about, it's about moving the heart. I, I can relate to some of the things you mentioned earlier regarding the interfaith uh, dialogue process. Um, back when I was studying theology, I guess it was sort of a, sort of a height of the ecumenical time in the Catholic uh, Church. And I remember feeling a sense of alone together. I, mm. I wasn't very moved by it. I felt we were just being alone together because yeah. there was still some kind of, whether it was an agenda or someone had to feel like perhaps they had the most authority or, you know, there was there was no necessarily no openness as you're 
referring to, of actually engaging some practice of another person's faith. I think perhaps the idea of conversion might have been lingering in the back of minds yeah. or membership or, or, or even something more minimal like, I, you know, not wanting to get in trouble <laughs> right. because you are the authorized representative. So um, playing, you know, those cards very close to the vest, I found not to be a very fulfilling experience that way. Um, but you're talking about something that, but n- none, nonetheless, it needs to be said, interfaith dialogue is critical work and it's still going on and it still has to. Um, for people to move away from, for example, the from the burning of books to the celebration of another, there is that middle place that we need to go through. And that's, yeah. you know, understanding and acceptance and tolerance. And, and that all those phases are, are critical on this journey. But what you're describing is uh, quite a different experience uh, now. So now, how did you first learn of, of this and become involved in the interspiritual journey? Mm, well, it, I've been involved in interspirituality really all my life. I, I don't know anything other than interspirituality in the sense that I was born into a non-religious Jewish family, a secular Jewish family, who identified culturally as being Jewish, but my parents who were anti-war activists in the 60s and then just generally social activists throughout their lives, were really uh, anti-religion. They, they had a deep suspicion of organized religion and, in fact, felt that organized, institutionalized religions, particularly the Judeo-Christian traditions, were responsible for a great deal of suffering in this world. And so they really conflated religion with spirituality, and they... they you know, threw out that spiritual baby with that religious bathwater in many ways. But I, as a child, was always deeply drawn to every single religious tradition that I encountered. The more formal, in some sense, the the more it appealed to me. Um, but when I was a, a child, we lived in, and I still live in Taos, New Mexico, and it was really a, kind of the the vortex of the alternative living scene at that time. So there was a lot of communal living back to the land movement and all of that. And we went to an alternative school, and the the school was managed by the Lama Foundation, which is where Ramdas wrote his his iconic book, Be Here Now, that really introduced uh, Eastern religions to to an American audience in particular in 1970. And so Lama Foundation was and continues to be known for as a gathering place for all spiritual traditions. All spiritual paths are honored and practiced uh, there and studied uh, at the Lama Foundation. So Lama being in charge of the school that I went to, uh, there was a lot of, there were Buddhist monks of every every sort, Buddhist lamas in the Tibetan tradition, roshis in the Zen tradition, um, other Vipassana teachers, mindfulness meditation teachers. There were Hindu Hindu sadhus from India and um, strong emphasis on Neem Karoli Baba, Ramdas's guru. You know, there were all faith traditions, Sufism, which is the mystical branch of Islam, of course, uh, mystical Judaism, Kabbalah. And so I was introduced to all of these different spiritual pathways, a lot of native traditions, because we're here in in New Mexico where there's a strong indigenous uh, base. And so 
then I moved to Lama Foundation when I was 14. I experienced a very profound loss. My first love, my boyfriend, was killed in a in a gun accident, and it really broke me open, and I ended up moving up to Lama Foundation, and that's when I became truly immersed in all of these different spiritual paths, and I received what I call my interspiritual formation at, at Lama Foundation so that it really felt to me that all spiritual paths lead to the one who transcends all, all form. And uh, so I really came by my interspirituality, honestly. <laughs> I, I'm not a refugee from some particular lineage or tradition who's r- suddenly realizing that my mind is not the only way, although I certainly encounter a lot of people who who are recovering from that kind of in- indoctrination. But now, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later, 40 years later, I am finding my tribe my interspiritual tribe everywhere I go. There are many of us who have been on a an interspiritual path for a long time without having a word for it. You know, one of my primary teachers is Murshid Samuel Lewis, the American Sufi teacher who created Dances of Universal Peace. It used to be called Sufi dancing. And he was on that path, you know, many fifty years ago. Hazrat Anayat Khan, the great um, Sufi teacher from India who came to America and his son Pir Vilayat Khan and Pir's son Haz, uh, Pir Zia Khan. They're, everyone has been doing this for, not everyone, many people have been doing this for a long time. Not as many women as I wish are known, although I think women tend to be, dare I say, naturally interspiritual, um, but that's another story and I'm happy to talk about what I mean by that if you like. Yes, thank you. I was just thinking that, you know, so many women are the mystics we turn to in history. And I was also thinking that even from the beginning, um, even though we didn't touch on Christianity there, but from from, yeah, oh, yeah. (laughs) But from, you know, from the, uh, you know, from early days, um, there's always seems to be to me to my mind, there's a mystical, like, like along the timeline of the of the church. There's um there's the history of the institutional church and then sort of above it is is the is the mystical history or what might be called uh, even the communion of saints that that goes alongside um but tells sort of a different story and has different responses from the core of the tradition and and responses to the core. Um, and often in sort of a remedy <laughs> to the institutional yeah. church <laughs> at the time. Um, so, and, you know, you and I, we've both written about John and, and Teresa. They suffered, especially John, suffered terrible persecution um, unto death. And at the same time, from that, from his contemplative prayer, from his mystical foundation, leaves us this legacy of amazing poetry and vision and image um, yeah. that's untainted. Um, exactly. So so this, and, you know, when you consider the suffering in the world, when you consider uh, what go- people go through right now, what's happening, whether it's the economy or illness, war, uh, violence around the world, um, we do reach, I think, more and more for that untainted love that emerges even from such, you know, pitiful depths as he was experiencing. Exactly. 
you know. Now, you attended a recent um, conference, I think, that was out in Washington State or by Vancouver. That's right. What was that like? Yeah. Uh, it was ecstatic. It was, it's called the Dawn of Interspirituality. So it was the first of what we hope will be an annual gathering of, of anybody who's up to these interspiritual shenanigans around the world. It was an international gathering. People came from many different countries and, and the United States and Canada to just come together in dialogue about this emerging interspiritual movement, which, as I spoke about in the last segment, is is uh, something many of us have already been up to for a long time, but is finally receiving some kind of um, uh, recognition in the culture at large that there that there are those of us who are who may have our roots in one particular faith tradition, but have an openness to many. In fact, may even be practicing in multiple religious traditions. So it was a gathering of people who are definitely ordained representatives of different religious traditions, uh, ordained or otherwise, and then a, a lot of people who we would probably call spiritual but not religious, or new monastics, people who are really dedicated to cultivating a deep inner life and activating that life in service, but do not subscribe to any one uh, religion. And so there were forums, there were plenary talks, there were workshops, there was a lot of ceremony and ritual, a lot of play, dance, music, um, and then a lot of free time for conversation and connecting. So there was a great deal of networking that happened. And it, it all took place at this quite extraordinary uh, center called the Cascadian Center. It was for many years called Camp Brotherhood, but they felt that that was too... Um, uh, stilted uh, or too weighted toward the masculine brotherhood, so they changed it to, to the Cascadian Center because of where it is. It's located kind of <laughs> equidistant between Seattle and and Vancouver. <laughs> much too much too nineteen fifties. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Exactly, and it was created in the nineteen sixties by a Catholic priest See? and a rabbi. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Just, yeah, they were just their mission was to try to <clears throat> create a place, a camp, they called it where Jews and Christians at the time could come together, and then it became a place for people of all faiths to gather. But, but their mission kind of started to sizzle over the last few decades, a couple of decades, and is now being revived as an interspiritual center. Maybe mm. we'll even become an intentional community as well as a retreat center. So that's very exciting. But the land is truly sacred and gorgeous land mm. up there in the Cascades. Mm, thank you so much for that. Um, you know, it, it just it raises questions in terms of the practice, you know, for me. Um, I wonder if, and of course you can share your, your from your perspective here, uh, I wonder if people who, well, let's just say, I wonder if it's possible to have sort of a primary uh, window on faith, let's say whether it's Christian or, or Jewish or, you know, Muslim, uh, or another faith, uh, and take on some additional practices or helpful tools, whether it might be sitting Zen, 
um, or praying five times a day. I don't even think you need to try someone else's. I think if a, even a Christian knelt down five times a day, that's going to be some form of relating uh, to someone else's life. Um, yeah. And, you know, I don't know if you would identify yourself as, as someone, these are kind of all equal and there isn't any particular primary window. But I'm wondering, you know, is this something attractive more to people sort of uh, here in the U.S. and in the West? Um, I haven't encountered necessarily anyone uh, on the program here in these years who from a you know particular religion, um, whether it was Hindu or or even you know Sufi, uh, who talked about taking on a practice from another faith. Can we talk mm-hmm. a little about your experience of sort of where this is culturally? Yeah, yeah. sure. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind and heart as you speak is that when I I speak around the country and and um, lead retreats, mostly contemplative, interspiritual contemplative retreats, so meditation across the traditions. And what I find is when I when I give talks, particularly in in churches and synagogues, there it's like the closet interspiritual people come out of the closet, including Episcopal priests and rabbis and and people who are clergy who end up opening their hearts and publicly declaring, I I have always had this inclination toward other religions. My heart has always opened in the presence of the sacred in other holy houses, and I've had to repress it. I've had to keep it a secret, even from myself in some cases, they'll say, because it just, I didn't know how to reconcile that with my devout connection to my own faith tradition. So it's, it's, so, it's like people are so relieved to hear that it's not only okay to to practice in somebody else's tradition and have a spiritual experience in another in another lineage but that it may in fact be the evolutionary trajectory of the of the human family that we that we have to start melting the boundaries that separate us and allowing ourselves to be transformed by our encounter with other wisdom ways so to to address your question in particular um, about is it do, do most people have one and then open themselves to experiencing the others, or are are they are most people am I finding more like me where they're kind of one of it, one of each? Uh, I would say it's kind of fifty fifty. I would say there are a lot of people who are finding that they are still deeply rooted in their own faith tradition, and in some cases their faith is even strengthened by their encounter with other faith traditions and that by opening their heart and and engaging in practices either occasionally or regularly in another faith tradition their own their own connection grows deeper and stronger but more open you know you you described mysticism as a kind of remedy and i i agree i think mysticism meaning direct experience of the sacred is the antidote to fundamentalism. Fundamentalism separates and mysticism connects. And so a lot of people are finding that far from being endangered by their willingness to open their hearts and be, and be transformed, they are um, they're finding that they're, they're more deeply connected to their, their own faith tradition comes 
even more alive for them. But there are people like me who who truly are very much inter-spiritual beings in the sense that there is no one root tradition. And in some ways that, that has been lonely for me, but it's less so now because I find that there is that there are many of us who are like that, and we create our own our own family. Right, right, yeah. and that's that's lovely too. Um, and I would think you're a member everywhere, <laughs> wherever right. you go, you belong. <laughs> and I often feel welcomed. I very rarely do not feel open-heartedly mm. open, oh, welcome with open arms. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know. Um, I remember speaking with, um, uh, I think, one of the leading, you know, Muslim and Sufi scholars on the planet down there at George Washington University. It was um, uh, Dr. Nas, and uh, I asked yeah. him at some point on the on the in the interview. So, what is it that's you know what is preventing peace, let's say, between Christians and Muslims? And he answered very plainly, the the Holy Trinity. And I said, excuse me, <laughs> it's the it's a point of doctrine. And right. he said, yes, we cannot imagine, God is one, and God, we cannot imagine any threeness involved uh, yeah, no in, with Allah. It's, there, it's, huh? it's, it's just one, one, God is one. There's no dividing God. And I, and I remember that was so meaningful to me, that sort of plain sharing about that. And uh, I've spoken with many Sufis since, and oh, of course, always getting to the matter of the heart. And yeah. this is sort of like what we were talking about before, that where doctrine is and then where mysticism is. And so let's talk a little about moving across, you know, like whether it's prayer across traditions or how we connect across the traditions at the heart or the core of faith. You have a lot of uh, experience uh, writing and sharing about that. You know, the most powerful practices of each each path uh, seem to be the ones that open the heart and melt all our ideas about what's okay and what's spiritual and what's not. So practices, the, the primary one would be sitting in silence together. When people of different traditions engage in some kind of contemplative practice together, there is a, there is a falling away of those walls that are, or a, a dissolving of the boundaries that separate tradition from tradition. But you know, the John of the Cross, according to Thomas Keating, anyway, Father Thomas, uh, said that the the primordial language, the language of God, is silence. And it is in silence that we hear God, that we hear God's voice. And so that's a very powerful uh, way of communing with the divine in each other in in the heart, is in, through contemplative prayer or silent meditation. Music. Sacred music in every tradition is the great heart opener. So chanting, uh, kirtan in the Hindu tradition, zikr in the in the Muslim in the Islamic tradition, uh, hymns in the Christian tradition, Hebrew chants and prayers in the Jewish tradition. All of these things, when we engage in them together, have that that effect of connecting us and unifying us and lifting us to that place where we already are one with each other and with the Holy One. So contemplative silence, music, um, rituals and practices that 
that we're allowed to participate in, in with each other. For instance, uh, receiving communion, the mass in the Catholic in the Roman Catholic tradition is not open to everyone. Although I certainly encountered some Catholic priests who shall go unmentioned, who have um, who have allowed other people who have not allowed who have joyfully given communion to people who are not baptized as Catholics. But being able to receive communion, which I have done in various Christian traditions, has been for me as a someone who was born Jewish and is a little bit of everything, has been incredibly powerful, a truly transformational experience for me. You know, whether you believe in the transubstantiation that you're taking in, which I guess technically, doctrinally, only Catholics believe, but which I, as a Jewish, Sufi, Buddhist, Hindu, pagan believe, that you're taking in, you are participating in the body and blood of Christ. I I can't tell you how meaningful uh, that has been for me. What an ecstatic and profound experience. So these are the kinds of things. Um, For me, I practice Shabbat. Every Friday night, I light the Shabbos candles, and that goes until Saturday night, Shabbat, the sacred, deeply sacred time of rest and renewal in the Jewish tradition, of unplugging from our... Uh, driven, ordinary, compulsive lives of having to get things done and just being. So I have shared my Shabbat practice, and I have a very specific kind of thing that I do, with thousands of people at this point. And and many, many people of all faiths and no faith have taken on the Shabbat practice that I have shared with them because it is truly transformational. So what if it comes from the Jewish tradition, if it enlarges and expands our hearts and and grows our souls, then that's kind of what it's what it's all about. So it's sharing the best of each faith tradition across multiple lines. Thank you so much, Mirabai. That was so beautifully said. We're about halfway through the program right now, so I'm just going to take a short break uh, for a program ID. Okay. You are listening to the Godspeed Institute, a program dedicated to spiritually-based living and religious tolerance. When we return from the break, we'll continue our conversation on interspirituality with Mirabai Starr, author of God of Love, after the break. Stay with us. What you want to hear But you know it might be different in the new year That's why, that's why We hang the lights so high Joy, 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 joy As a kid, and now you need it more than you ever did. It's because of the dark we see the beauty in the spark. That's why, that's why the carol. 
Welcome back to the Godspeed Institute. You're live with CARE, and we're speaking with teacher, translator, and author Mirabai Starr about interspirituality. Now, Mirabai, in the first part of the program, uh, where we covered a lot of ground about uh, traditions and sharing traditions, and you shared some beautiful commentary on uh, people uh, enjoying uh, the practices of other uh, traditions, um, from Judaism to Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, Sufism, and more, uh, and, and different aspects like sacred music and sacraments. Um, thank you. I want to thank you for that first. But I also want to ask you, what does this help to address today? What do you think people are responding to in, in actually taking on, if not the belief, some of the practices of different faiths together? Well, you know, in our globalized world, and there are a lot of negatives that have gone uh, along with globalization um, that we're that we're well aware of, of economic disparity and, and uh, corporatocracy and all of that. But some of the positive aspects of this globalization or this globalized impulse is that it's connecting the whole world in a way that, that the world has never been connected before. And I think as a result of this ability to communicate with other people from other cultures and other belief systems is that the, the walls that have been built up, these kind of tribal alliances and separations, are not making the sense anymore that they used to make, that, that the boundaries are beginning to come down because they they're not necessary. And so along with 
with those communication, uh, the, the walls of communication coming down and, and people connecting artistically, intellectually, and so on, there's a spiritual awareness that's growing by virtue of our encounter with each other's uh, ancestral faith traditions. And people are beginning to resonate with each other and really realizing that we have far more in common than we have different. And so I, I don't want to sound like some kind of prophet because I'm, I'm not, uh, but I, in, except in, in so far as I feel that we are all prophets right now and we're all being called to step up and speak truth, uh, whether it's comfortable or not, and it usually isn't. But, but my prophecy, <laughs> nonetheless, is that institutionalized religion is dying. It's going, it's, obs- it's becoming obsolete. Now, before your listeners freak out and say, what, you know, the, the, we don't want to lose these beautiful religious traditions that we've had in some cases for thousands of years, I'm not saying that the religions themselves are going to become obsolete, but the separation, the dogmatic uh, adherence to this is the only way has got to go, and people are going to become more naturally interspiritual, and that the very best of the religions are going to, of course, survive and flourish, which I happen to believe the very best of the religious traditions are the mystical teachings and the, and the beautiful heart-opening practices of each tradition, mm. and that the, the, the dogmas and doctrines that uh, separate and judge are going to just naturally fall away. I, I believe there will always be representatives of particular faith traditions, and I call them the keepers of the jewels. And we need the keepers of the jewels. We need those people to carry the treasure from generation to generation so that they don't get lost. Um, and, and then the rest of us are there to, to create bridges between yes. the faith traditions. Yes, I hear what you're saying. It's the it's the corporate aspect that that divides, um, yeah. that is sort of <laughs> maybe crumbling um, at this point. However, uh, I'll share with you. Um, you know, as far as my own experience is concerned, I was ordained by a united gathering of um, Protestant and Roman Catholic clergy, and what I find when you actually do be that bridge, when you become the bridge. Yeah. Uh, these categories do fall away. And I've had very funny conversations with people asking me, so what church are you in? And I say, <laughs> and I say, you know, <laughs> I say, well, I'm, you know, Christian. I'm like, but what, but what church? The Christian church? Um, and, but what did not, and you can see the difficulty in letting go of the boxes. Yeah. Um, because, you know, they know if you're, if you're Catholic, you're Episcopal, you're, you know, Methodist or Baptist, I guess they can, you know, it's it's easier to just sort of understand who people might be or what they might believe. But in some ways, for me, the experience is basically going back to the beginning. It's going back to a pre-denominational community. And like you, it's a little, you know, the course, it can be lonely. Um, but you need to walk the path. I need to walk this path. It's It's part of how we... Uh, move forward. It's not the same kind of safety net as, you know, an easy sort of community that's established and such. Um, you know, but at the, I, at the same time, you know, we, we, we walk our, you know, walk the walk. Um, now, 
when we talk about what you just said there, the, about you know some of the corporate aspects or institutional aspects passing and leaving the real kernels, of course, which would be truth um, and love at the heart of all the faiths, um, I think that's where where you were heading with that. Um, mm-hmm. That those are the things that that stay. Right. Right. Exactly. So my um, my last book, God of Love. Uh, a Guide to the Heart of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam was really an effort to to show where the at least the Abrahamic faiths all connect, and they all connect in the in the place of the heart. They all connect through love, but that not but and that love manifests in in different ways. Uh, one well, many ways. Um, infinite number of ways, but the two primary streams that I was following in that book and in my teaching in general is one, the the mystical stream of longing for God, of union with God that we find at the heart of all of the major world religions, particularly the Abrahamic faiths have this strong lover-beloved I was going to call it a metaphor, but it's a living metaphor. It's more than a metaphor. Experience of the soul longing for union with God and God longing for the soul to return. And that's one stream, the mystical stream. And the other stream of love is the social justice stream and how every religion that I know of affirms in one way or another, in some language or other, that the the truest test of our connection to the divine of our relationship with the Holy One is how we treat one another in community, and in fact how we tend the earth herself as as a, a beloved member, the most important member perhaps of our community. So the, the stream of mysticism and the stream of social justice and environmental justice are, are the, the two ways in which I feel all, all religions meet in the heart. And now when you t- when you talk about these two streams, one being union with God, the other being social justice, for some reason I went back in my mind to the phrase you brought up before which was spiritual but not religious. <laughs> That's another phrase. <laughs> um, yeah. coming up more and more these days. Now, what does this what does that phrase mean to you when you hear it? And and how do you think perhaps interspirituality might address it? Yeah, well, you know, it, I think that came out of a the, the fact that on the census forms there was no category for for people who were not a, of a particular religion, but they weren't atheists either. You know, they they their whole life is about the spirit, but they just didn't have a box that they could check that identified them. So, and then the the other one phrase that's used for people who consider themselves to be spiritual but not religious, SB. And ours uh, is the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. You know, none of the above, but everything. So, I think that that a lot of people who consider consider themselves to be spiritual but not religious are younger people. They tend to the population or the demographic of spiritual but not religious is not exclusively, but generally under I would say forty, certainly under fifty in general. So, people who grew up in in a world where there where religious affiliation didn't doesn't make sense anymore a particular religious affiliation they have a strong contemplative uh 
orientation or inclination. They like to engage in meditation practices of, of different kinds, but they don't want to go to a Zen monastery and become a Zen monk or to a Trappist monastery and become, you know, a, a Catholic monk, They, especially the women. They uh, feel like they don't, they can't find their place in any of the established monastic environments, but they have this this urge to really dedicate their lives to the to God. Um, so and they can yeah, find and they can find that that particular dedication is actually limiting, even though it appears to be in fullness or full commitment. That it is actually you know actually following one particular uh, discipline and and shutting out the others. Right, it feels exclusive. It feels like it's putting their their vast God in a box and somehow right. violating that that um, the vastness of the vast mystery uh, of the divine that they intuit. You know, I, you were talking about John of the Cross, who was our mutual beloved Saint John of the Cross, and he's. So I was thinking as you were speaking, and, and just now as we we're exploring this spiritual but not religious business. John speaks about the dark night of the soul as a state of radical not knowingness, right? He, that we have to walk through the dark. We have to trust that our feet know better than our heads where we're going and where we need to go. And it's, it can be terribly uncomfortable to be an interspiritual being, to be spiritual but not religious, to be an ecumenical Christian, to not have... Oh, what feels like a safe place where people tell us exactly what to believe, you know, that, that we have to walk through the dark night of the soul every day of our lives in order to stand up in the truth of our hearts. <sighs> yes. Yes, that is, that's it. That's it right there. Um, but, you know, there's also something else that's uh, almost practical uh, I find listen, when I was listening to you as well that it seems to me each faith has some piece or puzzle, part of the puzzle um, that another may not have. For example, even in just in terms of, of approach to life, uh, Christianity, 2.5 billion people <laughs> on, the, on the planet, yeah. but not a meal plan. Uh, there's no particular diet or exercise regimen. There's nothing necessarily yeah. there because that's not where the religion focuses. Um, so many people find that taking on, whether it's um, yoga, which is actually a religious practice, a spiritual practice, uh, helps with that or vegetarian diet or something that is from another that right. an influence helps to have a more holistic experience of, of of health and spirituality, and doesn't compromise one's one's faith in any way. I mean, you can it. You don't become less Christian by practicing yoga. Exactly, exactly. And I'm, um, you know, and that's one of the things I'm. I'm sure people might be concerned about or afraid of, and such. But, you know. I don't know that there are any downsides to this at all. Someone mentioned uh, in some material to, you know, be watchful of sh what's called shallow pluralism. I not, have a thing What do you to think about, about that? that. <laughs> Go ahead. Thanks for asking. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, I think that there is a, a, actually a certain violence to that message and that many of us have uh, have experienced that as an abuse. I, for instance, found that particularly in my teens when I was very 
deeply exploring multiple religious and spiritual traditions, I, I kept getting the message that it's very nice of you, dear, uh, to be you know, opening your, yourself to all of these different faith traditions, but eventually you're going to have to pick one and go deep. And I, you know, nodded my little head and said, yeah, that certainly makes sense. I, I better pick one. But every one felt equally beautiful to me and also equally limiting. And I found that I was, I was temperamentally incapable of, of choosing one particular tradition. But I did not experience myself as having a shallow relationship with all of these different spiritual paths. I didn't feel like I was just skimming by some kind of spiritual dilettante, dabbling in this one and that one, because I was uh, unwilling to, to cultivate the discipline and do the hard work of any particular spiritual tradition. In other words, my encounter with many spiritual traditions was profound and continues to be. Um, so that, that having m- what my friend... Uh, Reverend Matthew Wright calls multiple religious belonging does not preclude depths of encounter with these various traditions. So I have come up, well, I'm not the only one, I'm sure many people have come up with this metaphor, uh, of the bee in the garden. And I see interspirituality and those of us who practice across faith traditions as being like bees who are gathering the nectar from all the world's great spiritual traditions. And what does a bee do with that nectar? We, a bee transforms, the nectar becomes transformed into honey. And then honey, of course, it is a source of nourishment, both for, the, for, for ourselves and, and for us to feed the hungry world. And that's what we do. We gather the best of each tradition. Does that make us shallow pluralists or dilettantes? No. If we're not taking the whole thing, that means that, that we're being discerning. And we, we have, the, to me, the divine gift as human beings of being able to discern. And so we're not drinking from the noxious weeds in the garden because that would be foolish. Don't drink the poison. Drink the nectar and leave the poison. And I think that's what interspirituality is about. So if we're not buying into all of the different doctrines of any particular faith tradition, particularly the ones that are exclusionary and violent and hurtful and, and, um, and not, not promoting unity and connectedness and love, then we are just being smart. Smart bees. Mm. <laughs> Thank you. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. That's that's beautifully said. And thanks for addressing that issue of, I have it in quotes here, shallow pluralism. Yeah. Thank you for dealing with that. Now, you mentioned before about people perhaps of a younger age uh, being attracted to this as well. And I guess I, I just wanted to ask you as a professor, uh, when you're uh, looking at your classroom or, your, or you know your students, uh, what do you see there and what are they looking for? Well, I, you know, I think that monasteries, monastic environments in general, across the globe, are seeing a real decline in people who are, who are willing to dedicate their lives to, um, you know, to, to a monastic tradition. But what we're seeing is that there is a growing number of young people who, who have this burning yearning for 
for God. They just can't relate to to the traditions. So, in, in some ways, I think that the 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 established religious traditions think that young people are becoming less religious. In my experience, they're becoming more spiritual. Their hunger for spiritual spiritual experience, for peace, for connectedness, uh, is growing stronger and stronger. And they also, young people, also are incapable of separating their spiritual lives from their from their concerns for the suffering of the world. In other words, the line between action and contemplation is is disappearing. That for the for a young and many for many older people as well, of course, there have been active activists who have been deeply religiously rooted forever. Um, and in our culture, of uh, you know the Catholic peace activists for for many decades and, and other traditions, engaged Buddhism. But in general, I'm just finding that young people really want uh, a meditation practice, and they also want to dedicate the fruits of their practice to alleviating suffering in the world. Um, so that's, that's what, I'm, what I'm seeing. And I that's so place, beautifully said. Go ahead. Yeah, and I want to I make a place at the table for them. You know, there isn't one yet exactly in spiritual and religious gatherings you know where where's their place so that's that's my mission and uh yes uh, i i can understand that the you know the spirituality is basically the same the same line as you meant as you said as the interest in compassion and social justice and the relief of suffering out there which is so clear uh, to young people as it always is in every generation so now as we Come to the end of the interview, I do want to let listeners know that all your website and contact information will be posted on our homepage at godspeedinstitute.com. And I just wanted to ask you one more time for your latest book on Julian of Norwich, if you could give that one one more plug. <laughs> yes, thank you, Kara. Um, so I have a new book out, the sh- uh, to translation of The Showings of Julian of Norwich. The publisher is Hampton Roads. And I also have a couple of new books out with Sounds True, one on St. Francis called Brother of Creation, and one on Teresa of Avila called Passionate Mystic. And you're another passionate mystic, and I just want to thank you again for, for being on the show. It's always a pleasure speaking with you, Mirabai, and the hour goes by so quickly. Thank you, Kara. You are a sister of my soul. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for the Godspeed Institute today. The Godspeed Institute is an independent educational organization dedicated to promoting religious tolerance and spiritually-based living. If you'd like to hear this or any of our previous programs again, or send it to someone, simply go to godspeedinstitute.com. Please send your comments to info at godspeedinstitute.com. We always enjoy hearing from you. And join us again as we continue to explore all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems. Until then, we wish you Godspeed on your journey.